You're listening to Five Things with Lisa Birnbach. Hi, it's Lisa Birnbach. It is what it is, says the president. It is what it is. You know, not for me, it never is what it is. I mean, there's always a deeper place to go. There are always reasons things are the way they are, and they are the most interesting part of the is, if you get what I'm saying. You know, Donald Trump has lived essentially a hermetically sealed life much longer than any of us. He worked and lived in the tower that bore his name in New York. He only travels to his properties. I mean, until he was president, he only went to his own properties. He's not somebody you can imagine sightseeing, right? Trekking along Hadrian's Wall or the Great Wall of China. He lives in a Trump bubble of his golf courses, his hotel, which is the only restaurant he's alleged to have eaten at since he moved to Washington, in Washington. He goes to Mar-a-Lago, and that's it. When he walked out of the White House and had that absurd and, I think, offensive photo op in front of the church, it was the first time we saw him anywhere, outside. I don't think he likes outside. So when he says it is what it is, he has very little to base that on. But Digging into reasons for things is is something that gives me satisfaction, and that is also why I like to read fiction, because in fiction, we hear about protagonists' intent and what is behind their actions, and it's very satisfying. Honestly, the beginning of quarantine in March, I had trouble concentrating. Now, not so much, and reading fiction for me is about as escapist as it gets, only rivaled by my dreams at night, which are truly, truly weird. But enough about me. I want to talk about our guest this week. It is Sheila Nevins. Sheila Nevins is known to people in the film and media world for her longtime stewardship of the documentary division of HBO. She got there before there was a documentary division, as she will tell you in this podcast, and she ran it for pretty much 35 years in the process, winning Emmys and Oscars and Peabody Awards for her films, or or the filmmakers did, in the process working with the Maisel brothers and D.A. Pennybacker and Liz Garbus and so many accomplished filmmakers. By the way, she herself, Sheila Evans, has won 31 Primetime Emmy Awards more than any person ever, ever in the history of the medium. She's also written a book, which is a memoir, but a very unusual one, and it's called You Don't Look Your Age and Other Fairy Tales. I think you will enjoy listening to Sheila Evans. Now, before we get to that interview, here are my five things of the week. Number one, Lloyd's Carrot Cake. I am a lifelong New Yorker, and I'd never heard of this very famous cake until I met a family from Westchester that just, I don't know, just Quelled over it. Anyway, the story is that a man named Lloyd Adams started baking with his mom's recipe in his kitchen in Harlem. And 
he tweaked the recipe and he made this carrot cake that I guess was sublime. And it was so good and people loved it so much that he was able to open his first bakery in the Bronx in Riverdale in 1985. And from carrot cake, he he spread out to chocolate cake and red velvet cake and coconut cake, but not much more than a few flavors. And now he died, Lloyd died, but there are two branches of Lloyd's carrot cake, one in East Harlem and one in the Bronx. They're famous. They ship nationwide. I think we'll try to put a link on the website to that. And I finally had a slice and it was very, very good. Number two, I've been looking for all kinds of Clorox products, not to drink, but haha, but to uh, antisept. And I can't find any of them, but I found something called Method's Antibacterial Spray. Now, Method, I know I've had their hand soap before, and it's a little, I don't know, fancier, more, I don't know, a little higher end than Clorox. But you know what? I love it. It smells really good. And I'm still spraying groceries in some packages when they arrive. I know that some experts are no longer doing this or they're leaving things on their back porch, but we of Manhattan don't have back porches. So I'm using Methods Antibacterial Spray. Number three, I am wearing, as I speak, my blue light reading glasses. Now, there's been a big push online if you wear reading glasses, that they're these glasses with some technology in them that make it easier to stare at a screen, which we all do for hours, with less eye strain. So I'm wearing my blue light reading glasses. You know, I can't tell really whether they're better than the ones without, but I assume they are. And Thus, I am the perfect customer, a true sucker. There's a manufacturer that I've seen online called Caddis, C-A-D-D-I-S, and I ordered a pair, but my tiny, tiny head is too narrow for them. So at the moment, I'm wearing iBob's blue light-canceling reading glasses. This is not an endorsement because I don't know if they're working, but... This was a tough week to come up with five. Would you please tell me if you know the science behind this blue light canceling stuff? Would you tell me if you've tried them, if there's a brand that you like better, or if you have your optician do it themselves? And write to me at lisabernbach.com. That's kind of easy to remember. Number four, competence. Quarantinorama has made me more competent, I have to admit. I am cooking more than I ever have. I now know that I can follow a recipe and I can even adjust it if I need to for allergies in this household or for ingredients I don't have. I can bake something edible mm, half, maybe a third to a half of the time, but I'm baking. I'm I'm getting over my fear of the of the baking. I recently paralleled park my car beautifully. See, because things are desperate here. So having a sense of accomplishment, of competence, doing the laundry all the time, cleaning the house more than I used to, you know, it helps. It helps buffet me up. And of course, reaching genius in the New York Times spelling bee, which I do 
almost every day is a consolation for not being able to go outside. Number five, Dr. Fauci. He's telling us what we need to do, even when we don't get to see him on TV in a news briefing. Science, 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 and patience and masks. You've got to wear a mask. I'm going to put on the website Randy Rainbow's newest song, which is a tribute to Dr. Fauci. It was a wonderful laugh that I had this week, and I'd love to share it with you. Coming up, the exciting Sheila Evans. Don't go away. Sheila Evans, I read every word of your book, Oh no. Look Your Age, Another Fairy Tale. So I feel I know a lot about you, and yet I feel I know nothing about you. Good. And and (laughs) it's a very interesting take on a memoir, because rather than talk about your rather incredible life, which I had to look up in other places on the internet, and, and they're obviously available, so I could catch up and how you ended up being the documentary, I don't want to say czar, but you were for so many years at HBO, the person who made documentaries and who made documentaries into the mainstream kind of uh, entertainment that they are now, because before that, they were like those hygiene films in high school and the things warning kids not to drive too fast. So- You skip all that in your memoir. You mean like my background? My, like my how whatever? you got, well, I, you, you talk yeah, about Barnard College, you talk about different loves, you talk about your husband and your son, you talk about Dr. Baker. What I love about it is it's kind of free form, it, they're poems. It's like your selected greatest hits of Sheila and Evans, but it doesn't <laughs> really go into how you became what you are. But I don't know the answer to that. So how could I write about it? Uh-huh. In other words, what, what would be the, what, what, how could I write about what I don't know? I know well, I had a facelift. I know I had a kid who had Tourette's. I know I, you know, fell in love and have my heart broken. I knew I spent a lot of money on my teeth and the teeth were only meant to last like 38 years. I, the things I knew, but I didn't really know how all that happened happened. I know I fought my way to get- You had to to have been a very ambitious, very hardworking person because number one, you were working in a man's field. And number two, you actually created a field. But I stole a field. I didn't exactly create it because I wanted so much to be successful that I didn't even know what a documentary was. And I always hate being bored. I mean, I think I had what was- they used to say I had a hyperacuity when I was a kid that I could hear too many things. But I think I really had ADD, which was later diagnosed certainly in my son. And I think that I heard things. I heard what people were talking about, what they were doing. And I didn't understand why this thing called documentaries, which was a very low paying job right. at a place called HBO. I didn't understand why they offered it to me for $35,000 a week. And it was because it was I was cheap. It was cheap. I even think you meant 35000 a year, not a week. Yes, a year. Okay. okay. A year. 35000 a year. No benefits. 13-week contract. 
make documentaries, make them fast. So I had to learn quickly what this was because I couldn't find anybody who wanted this job. And I was at CBS sort of as a researcher and I was sent out at one point to do a piece on Diane von Furstenberg's rap dress because that shows you how long I've been around mm-hmm. because, because there were no, she wanted a woman. She wanted to talk to a man about a rap dress. And I didn't, you know, that was the first break I ever got. And I thought, hey, is this a documentary like people about rap dresses? And then I looked up documentary and I watched all these serious things about the CIA and Winston Churchill. And they weren't boring, but they were like going to school or, you know, being in the 1% of a certain kind of intellect. And it didn't seem like that was television. So I looked at things that were popular that were fiction because I had gone to the Yale Drama School and I, I liked audience. I wanted the audience to watch what I did. And so I basically stole from movies. So if, if Jaws was popular, I did something about killer sharks. If um, Bob and Ted and Carolyn Alice was popular, I did swinging. And I guess it didn't fit in the word of Winston Churchill, Adolf Hitler, World War II, but it certainly hit into real stories about what people were doing and they were watching them because we used to have these ratings and I, I wanted applause. I wanted a salary. I wanted applause. And if I was going to get applause, I had to be popular. And if I was going to be popular, I had to give people what they wanted. And if they called it, well, they wouldn't call it documentary at that time. They called it docutainment. <laughs> and I didn't take the docu part seriously. I took the tainment part seriously. Uh-huh. And so I looked for things that would be, entertaining, engaging, you know, and I found then that sad things could be entertaining because I saw love story mm-hmm. and I thought, oh, I could do sad. I don't just have to do jaws and sex. I can do sad. So then I really got into sad because I love sad. So I did sad stories about people struggling, not because I was a great political person, but because people watched them. They saw themselves in it. You know, the waitress who got breast cancer and couldn't pay for her services because they were waiters and waitresses and busboys and regular people. And, you know, I wasn't broadcasting to the elite because of pay television. So in a sense, it was theater for people that were at home, which is different than theater that people go to. So these people weren't paying admission exactly. They were paying a fee to be uh-huh. engaged. And so I just took things, you know, I took things from Anna Karenian. I thought, hey, I'll do suicide. You know, I took <laughs> the most menial ideas from the most profound events and things um, and made films. And everybody said, oh, you invented documentaries. Oh, look how successful real sex is. Oh, look how... Well, I mean, you know, there was a book then called Eros and I saw it at a tag sale. And the guy was arrested for doing this book called Eros. And I thought, oh, Eros, I'll do Eros, you know, mm-hmm. I'll do, I'll do, you know, places where people go to get sex. I'll do strippers. I'll do. Uh, well, you, you could know, do anything. Vegas. Yeah, you could do anything. I That's- could do anything. They didn't care at the time, which is not caring. Someone not caring about what you do at a job is one of the great gifts. Because <laughs> I didn't think of it as a job. I thought of it as a way to show as theater, you know, like what were plays about? What were people writing plays about? I could do, quote, docutainment about that. So it wasn't like I invented anything. It was kind of the greed of not being observed and wanting so much to be observed that made me borrow. 
I borrowed from everything. I borrowed from conversations with people. I borrowed from whatever was happening to my friends. I borrowed from divorces. I did a lot of things on divorce and marriage and whatever. I borrowed from experiences that people were having. Sick kids. Oh, sick kids are very popular. (laughs) Now, if you're old and you're sick, it's not popular. Right. Because nobody wants to be old and sick. Right. And old equals sick to most people. I tried that. It didn't work. No one cared about elder abuse. But they cared about child abuse. Yeah. They cared about children suffering. So I learned a lot about what people cared about by these ratings. And they were like selling tickets. You know, I I didn't invent anything. I borrowed. What now, if that's was, a form of invention, I then I invented. Well, <laughs> I, I guess, anything. yeah, I, I would say that you were producing these docutainments at a point at which other people weren't. And you're right. The people who, when we had to watch, when we, see, I slipped, when we had to watch documentaries. They had to, had to. Had to, because they were educational and. Educational. I I never did anything educational. I mean, I did for children, but but I, once I took over the children's area, but in the beginning, education was a bad word. I I didn't want to learn. I wanted to entertain. What was the documentary or docutainment or info doc that sort of rose to the top and made everybody pay attention, especially your bosses who, who weren't paying attention? The success of the quotients. The, 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 we had something we didn't have Nielsen's in because HBO was too small. Right. Remember, I was in a very small company. Right. And uh, docus were filled. They were not programs at the time. And the word docu- documentary was not, we didn't use it. We used documentary. Right. I think the sex shows did very well. And right. they were harmless. And they were late at night because right. it was a 24 hours grew to a 24 hour service. You could put them on at 11 o'clock and not get anybody yelling at you. Um, I think the sex shows were incredibly successful. The sad shows were uh, in, uh, rewarded by awards. And mm-hmm. I never knew about awards. I mean, I certainly knew about grades in school, but I didn't know about awards and I didn't know that they would matter to a big company. But I remember when we got our first Peabody for a show I did with Gloria Steinem called, because Ms. Magazine was coming out. Right. So we did a show called She's Nobody's Baby. Uh And I didn't do it because I was particularly a feminist. I didn't know anything. I just figured, oh, a new magazine and she's so pretty. And she was a Playboy bunny and she believes in women. (laughs) I wasn't like marching in any of her parades. I thought, oh, I'll do the Ms. Magazine. They'll want to do it because they'll want to sell it. And I'll do it because it's like coming out. So you get double, you know, double whammy. Yeah. And coming and all that. And it wanted something called a Peabody. Well, I didn't even know what it was. And Suzanne Levine called me and she said, you want a Peabody for us? We got a Peabody. They put that in your obit. I said, in my obit? She said, maybe you were the executive producer of it. I said, oh, wow. But do I have to die? She said, Yeah. <laughs> You have to go to an award ceremony and get a Peabody Award. And, you know, I said, is it money? She said, no, it's a thing. You get a thing and you take it home and you put it on your shelf. I said, I hate things on shelf. I always knock them off. She said, no, no. So that's when I learned that there were two things. There was numbers and there was prestige. And when I learned from the fact that I could have a Peabody in my obit, even though I was a long way then from it, at least I hoped so, I... I began to see that there was a two-edged sword. There were two things I could do. I could be popular and I could be 
smart about being popular. I could get them awards by being serious and doing things that were topical and that nudged the world a little bit. And I could also just be entertaining. And so I learned as I went. I didn't come with any education about television. My mother did not allow us to have a television. Wow. Uh, I used to have to watch the Milton Berle show at my friend Elaine's house because she wanted me to go to a good college. And I did everything she told me. I went to Barnard. Then I went to Yale. I was a good student. I did everything correctly. But I couldn't have a television. So when I entered television, because there was no place for women in theater if you weren't going to be an actress, when I entered television from Yale as a PA, and then I got this job, you know, at CBS as a researcher, and then Diane invented this dress. She hadn't invented the wrap dress. I probably never would have gotten out of the research group. You never know, Um, right? Right. It was the dress. It was that dress. I couldn't even fit into it. It didn't even look good on me, but it was the dress. (laughs) And then they sent me to do Richard Burton because he said, don't send send one of those dull producers. (laughs) And so they sent me to Canada. He was doing Equus and I went to Canada and I thought, gee, I got to meet. I almost fainted actually. But, you know, it was like, hey, this can be entertaining. Hey, is that what a docu is? Hey, is this what a news show is? Hey, maybe there's a home for me here. Maybe if I can't get to the theater and I can't direct, I can make something out of this thing called television, which I still didn't have one, Mm. but I bought one. Mm. (laughs) Now I have many. I have many TVs now. Sheila, the filmmakers that you hired in the beginning, were they actual filmmakers then or were they interns? Were they people who were... Still no one ever asked me that question. Because I was learning as I was going, I didn't really have any expertise. I always ha- I cast against type with the filmmakers. So I used Patty Kaplan to do the sex shows, and she was a PhD in art history. Mm-hmm. I didn't want a guy with a cigar, you know, with his right. crotch, you know, up on top of the table. I tried to go places that I hadn't been before. I would go to Spike. Lee, you know, I would go to people who never made a film before. Mm-hmm. I would try with them. There's no mystery. If the story's there and it's cast well, even if it's a real story, you have to cast it. If the person could retell their stories, if they were living their story, which is what an actor does, then I was already there. Then I had to find someone to do it. In the beginning, I did some of it myself with them. Then I began to say, hey, they don't need me. Mm. If it's cast right, if the idea's right, and the person can hear the other person and feel for the other person, then let them go. I'll executive produce it. I don't have to produce it. And so that was how I was able to do some 40 shows a year there. Do you believe that? 40 a year. It's incredible. Never bored. Never bored. bored. And when did the management of HBO, was it Michael Fuchs, I guess, who finally finally said... This is this is the real deal. This is a big part of our business. This is what we need to do at HBO. Michael, Michael was very fair. He was he was extremely difficult and fair, which seems to be a contradiction. But he didn't care who did what as long as it worked, and he knew I could make it work. And he let me breathe. And when I left, because I couldn't take some of the bureaucracy as it got bigger and bigger and bigger, became part of Time weeks. Warner. Yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't handle it. I just yeah. couldn't handle the bosses. I hate bosses. I couldn't handle bosses. And the thing was, I didn't have them with Michael, but then suddenly Michael 
got bumped around. That meant that I would get bumped around. And I left and he was still there. And I said, Michael, I'm going to go and do things on my own for you. And he said, I'll help you. I mean, he was very kind, very funny, very kind, very brusque, very difficult. All the things I think that I am. He was fair. And um, he said to me when I left, he said, who's going to tell me what they really think? (laughs) And and that was the other thing. I think that I um, have never been afraid to say what I think. I have often, you know, walked into water that way, but hot water. But um, I think I'm better now that I'm much older. I once had a boss who said to me, do you ever have an unexpressed thought? (laughs) And I (laughs) I said... I never had an unexpressed thought, but I think I have to learn to express it to myself a little more. Oh, so when funny. I realized I wanted more money and I wanted to make more money because money was important to me, I realized I would have to shut up a little more and think a little bit to myself. Think and talk only when I knew that this had to be said rather mm-hmm. than to say it. And I think it was, you know, all that crap about lean forward. I think I leaned back. More times than I'd like to admit, physically and (laughs) orally, I should say, or verbally. Uh And I learned to censor myself so that I could get the next job. Interesting. Interesting. I I practice self-censorship. Less as I get older because I don't give a shit, but more in my growth period. Um, You know, just I was careful. What comes across, what comes across in your book, You Don't Look Your Age and Other Fairy Tales, is very much a woman who does keep her own counsel. I mean, especially the pieces that um, read like verse, and there are quite a few, they almost seem to be whispers to yourself, you know, whether they have to do with should you fix your teeth? Should you get a facelift? What if you're not beautiful? Will you still get work? It's a very interesting meditation on aging and on, I think, taming yourself to... You know, it's interesting because I had to write the book because I never spoke about myself. Mm -hmm. And I had, it was a kind of a had to. When I was approached to write a book, the book was going to be about documentaries. Mm-hmm. And I said, I don't know anything about that. I don't know anything about documentaries. I never watched Nanook of the North. I don't know anything. But I'll write a book. I'll write about secrets. I'll write about people I know that I don't have to name. I don't mm-hmm. want to write about HBO. I'm not interested in HBO. Mm-hmm. And so it was. that was what the book was. Well, um, it and that's what it is. And it's full of surprises and secrets. I think before we get to um, my five favorite your things. five favorite things, I would love Quick to before talk. before they change. Yeah, they're going <laughs> to change any minute. I, yeah. I do want to talk about Larry Kramer because when you and I first started talking to one another on our secret phone calls, it was just before Larry died. And I, you know, you had said, and, and our friend Judy said that you were very close to him. But in reading your book, I now come away with what a huge part of your life he was towards the, the last however he many made years. He write the book. He t- he was going to make me cry because oh. his dog is very sick now. Oh, no. But you know how dogs know. And I just heard this morning that his dog, Charlie, has cancer. Oh, no. But anyway, Larry was a mis- I, Larry was a, it was a love affair really between you and, 
even though you're married to a wonderer. No, we were going to go away together. I love him. I loved him. And I loved him because he, I thought if someone like that likes me, he thinks I can do things and let me do the story about him, then maybe I can do other things, you know? And he said to me, so I wrote the poem first Mm -hmm. about him because it was his 80th birthday. Right. And I wrote this poem. I had no intent. I mean, I asked to write a book about HBO. And so I didn't want to. And success and women, nothing I knew about. So I wrote this poem and I had the party for him at my house. And Christian Bransky came to the party. Mm-hmm. And I said to Larry, it wasn't his husband at the time, but his partner. I said, David, should I read this to Larry? I wrote it, you know, because we invited some people over. And David said, oh, he'll love it. It's all about him. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, we meditate. We, we got together over lox and, and cream cheese. I could never eat lox and cream cheese again anyway without Larry. And he knew Nova from Locks, and I never. <laughs> yeah, knew, I you never got punished for cheap, for cheap no. salmon. Yeah, yeah. I once fooled somebody with Manischewitz and said it was a very rare wine that I had brought back from the Greek Isles, and I fooled them. And I thought <laughs> I could, I thought that I, I thought I could fool Larry with, you know, just from the local bake, you know, bakery Locks, and he said to me, "This is not Nova." She, <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> the, anyway, the words of a dying man. You don't, yeah. you take that seriously. But he said, you're funny. You should write a book. And I said, well, if somebody asked me to write a book about HBO, I have no interest in it. And he, I read the poem. So anyway, I said to Christiane, would you read this poem? And she said, yes, I love this poem. And so then I gave it, the husband said, yes. Moransky said, yes. I gave it to Larry. We're sitting on the couch. Mm-hmm. And I said to David, take a picture of us on the couch. And he took a picture. And so I had a picture of Larry and me and Christian Baranski sitting on the couch and Larry reading the poem. And when he finished the poem, he said, I like it. It's good. You should write more. You should do more. I said, why don't I just write a book about people I love and things that scare me? He said, do it, do it, do it. And I did it. And that was because of him. And the thing was, I wouldn't say it was because of him. I had thought of it, but... When he thought I was good at something, I thought I was good at something. He was a very stern person and impossible, cantankerous. Yes, the most lovable person mm. simultaneously. I lo- I think I like AZ things. You know, he was awful sometimes, always complaining, and he was the most loving. Mm. You know, and that was really the most engaging part of him. But it's so funny because I went to get tested for the virus because I'm not as careful sometimes as I should be. And I was negative, okay. But my doctor's on 9th Street and Larry lives on, well, lived right on Washington Square. Mm. And every time I go to this doctor or every time I was going to a matinee, I would have breakfast with him. So when I walked out of the doctor's office after you know having that thing stuck up to your brain, right. I turned the corner as if I was going to Larry, I forgot uh, that I wasn't going to ring from downstairs and say, can I come up for a half hour? Right. And it was so startling that I didn't know because I hadn't been in New York in months. Mm-hmm. And that was the way I went. And it was very hard. And so when I called this lovely man today to tell him that, not Larry, but a friend of his, to say what had happened, he told me about Charlie the dog. And I just... Uh, That's why it was rough. 
the dog. Oh, I'm the sorry. Dog, I would like to say that the dog is going to see Larry, but I'm not that person. But there are people who would say that. <laughs> that <laughs> he is going the, to the Rainbow Bridge to find Larry. Bridge. Larry, yeah. 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 I'm not one of the, I don't believe that. I believe the dog. Yeah. The dog is suffering because okay. he misses him and he's very ill and he has cancer. But I don't right. think the two are necessarily related, but. Right, but I'd like to. I'd like to think. Like it. to be that person. <laughs> yeah, I know it'd make life easier. Well, yeah. you know, there are a million things I want to talk to you about: being a woman, about vanity, about money. But we don't have the time to do it today. But uh, promise me, One we can do this again. Talk, I want to talk about getting old. I'd love to talk about that. I'm really interested. I'm 81 years old. I'm an old, old lady, and I face age shaming every day of my life. If one more person calls me dearie, I'm going to punch Are you them. kidding? No. You? Yeah, because they look at your birthday. And they say, I was at HBO when I was 78 still. Mm. And I went, I hurt my knee. And I went and this woman kept saying, did you fall or <sighs> did you trip? <laughs> and I said, I, well, I fell because I tripped. And she said, no, I don't mean that. Did you like fall down or did you trip? over something. I said, well, they were cutting a rug and I didn't look down and the rug was up where I was. And she said, did you know you fell? I said, look, come on. You know, I fell because I tripped. You would have fallen also. And she said, can I have your Medicare card? And I said, I don't have one because I'm still covered by my My work. Yeah. Yeah. But of course my birth date is 4639, which is a horrific birth date to walk around with. My mother couldn't have waited for four. Oh, at least I could have gotten away with that. <laughs> she said, no, dear. She said, let's look through your wallet together. Oh, no. Go, she treated yes. you like a child. Oh, yeah, yeah. awful. Let's yeah. do that. Let's definitely do that. Ooh, um, I hate age. Okay. I, I, I mean, do I don't too. mind it. I think it's a gift, but I don't like the shaming part. I don't either. Okay, or my the, five things? Yes, your five we'll things. We'll do them fast. We'll do okay. them fast. I won't run over. Go ahead. No, that's all right. Number one. It may change. Go ahead. It could change. I, I should say I'll that try. five minutes before. To, yeah, no, I love that. Five minutes okay. before we started, Sheila sent me a new list. And it could change in the next minute hurry, or two. Hurry, okay, hurry. hurry. Number hurry. one. Money. Okay. Money. You can You can expand on that a little. Okay. My mom had no fingers. She had a terrible, horrible disease. She my had mother, a, yeah. yeah, diabetes. She had rainoids. And and, no, she had rainoids. rainoids and surgery, just, but yeah. Okay. My father was a gambler. We had no money. My mother was a communist. She went to school with Ethel Rosenberg. My, it was a crazy family, crazy family. We never had enough money for anything. We never had money. We never had money for rent. We always had to wait. We never had money so that I could buy something new. We had to wait till somebody gave it to me. I had a wealthy right. uncle. We had to... You know, everything, my mother's uncle, my great uncle, always money, always money, always money. And it was always stressful, yeah. Stressful, stressful. And I always went to schools where girls had money because I was always a scholarship girl. So if I went to Little Red Schoolhouse, they had money. If uh, I went to, you know, uh, high school performing arts, uh, little girls took ballet for 10 years. I just yeah. danced creatively and got in. Okay, so each time I went somewhere, I was barnered. I had a, a work scholarship, mm. you know, Yale. I had a three arts fellowship. Everything was like, oh, take her, take her. <laughs> Rather than you must take her. Right. She'll donate to the school. You right. must take her. Right. She'll contribute. So 
fuck money, money, not looking at price tags. My yeah. goal at yeah. this late time, go into a store on Madison Avenue, none of which I've really been to other than the few discount ones, and not look at the price tag. Say, right. I want that. Yeah. It hasn't happened yet. You'll take me. <laughs> I will. I will okay. when it opens. Okay. Number Okay, number two. I don't remember. What was it? Your dog. I kept moving around this Your morning. dog. Bogey. Oh, bogey. Okay, bogey, because it shows what money can do. <laughs> bogey was, was a rescue dog. He was right. found on a street in Atlanta, Georgia. He weighed 17 pounds. He didn't bark for a year. Aww. He had double pneumonia. He was in a isolation unit in a very deluxe dog hospital. He got the best treatment, all that money could buy. He survived. Uh. Uh, he survived. Now he is smug and he is content and he gets Park Avenue shampoos and oh. haircuts. And he got over his PTSD <laughs> and it took him a year to learn to bark because he was too afraid to bark. Oh. And I want to just say it taught me so much about films because I learned from Bogey that if you nurture and you really care for, and that requires money, government, president, it requires money. And when you put money into things, into people, into animals, into humans, into everything, you get beauty and you get success. And he is my success because I spent so much on him. And and cared so much about him. Love him. Yeah, I know. He's my boyfriend. Where is he? No, where is he? Number three. There was a tree here in Massachusetts and it had no leaves. And I rarely saw it without leaves because they can come here in the winter. But this time I saw it without leaves and I felt sorry for it because it had no leaves. It was so ugly. And then I watched it get beautiful and more beautiful and more beautiful. And I thought, nature, I can't do that, can I? I lose my leaves. They don't come back. (laughs) I don't get more rings or wrinkles, rings in their case, wrinkles in mine. And then I come back and I'm beautiful the next summer. I'm older the next summer. So although I admire it because it's spiritual in some strange way, and I'm not particularly a woo-woo person, I resent it because I can't be it. Mm. Well, nature is the ultimate boss. I mean, oh, without we question. see that. Yeah, without yeah. Question. We especially and I've lost a lot of good friends to nature. Yeah, so have I. Yeah. Okay. Number four was eating cake without gaining weight. I'm sick of that. You know, someone once said to me, I can't remember the Elaine Stritch. It was some person I was working with on the show. I said, you're amazing to this person, you know, like you're 80 and you're still performing. It was must have been Elaine. Mm-hmm. I said, you're so great. You know, you're just great. You're impossible, but you're fucking great. And she said, and I said, and you're so thin. And she said, well, I can't do anything about getting old, you bitch. You know, but she said, at least I'm not fat, you know? <laughs> and I, I thought to myself, I can't do anything about aging, really. Oh, I can get a facelift. Yeah, but you're still old. You know, I can do this. I can get Botox. I can do anything. But I can't stop time. No. And um, cake, you eat it, your belly sticks out. You eat a string bean, you look like a string bean. Yeah. <laughs> That's life. <laughs> That's a choice. That's, That's an life. existential choice. Yeah. Um, and I like number five as well, making people laugh, being outrageous, and expressing the unexpressed carefully. My favorite, always will be, and I won't change that one, which is I really only censor if I think I'm going to hurt somebody's feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and I had to learn that, as I told you in the beginning, I had to learn to censor a little bit because I was so outspoken. Mm -hmm. Because if I would take a blind person across the street, I would stand there and talk to them about them being blind, you know, and they didn't always want to talk about it, you know, but I wanted to know what it felt like. And I, and then I realized sometimes I hurt people by saying things like, you know, you look good. Don't, you know, I don't know. You don't need a facelift. You don't need, your nose isn't too big. You know, I would say your nose is too big. And then I realized that you don't say that, Sheila. You have to, you know, that person's not, feels uncomfortable and you have to make them feel good. It took me a while. I'm not being terribly clear, but it took me a while to censor truth. But you know what, Sheila, you're also one of the most curious people, don't you think? And your curiosity, I'm going to say it, you've heard this before from some stupid Hallmark card person. Only for me, your curiosity keeps you young, for sure, 100%, because you're interested in everything. But why do we use the word young? Why don't we use the word alive? That's to be discussed on our next episode. <laughs> In other words, people use that word, and I never. Was I know. The I word know. "young" carries with it a lot of burdens because I don't think young. I think alive. I don't want to think young because if I thought young, I would say the wrong things. You know what? Though there is a point. Really, this is going to be a wonderful other conversation where I went, I realized when I went shopping for clothes one day that instinctively, without thinking about it, it was a reflex. Instead of saying, does this look fat or does this make me look fat? I started to say, am I too old for this? Of course. Of Of course. course, But it happened by itself. It was like the winter coming after the fall. It just happened. What about women your age don't wear that? They don't have long hair. Right. They don't do, they don't wear that light color. Right. They they don't carry that kind of purse. Mm -hmm. You know, we got to get out of that because Mm -hmm. what if we do live? I mean, you're so much younger than I, but I could probably be your mother. But the point is, I'm happy to say that. Yes. Yes. It was very hard to say that. It was very hard to say my age. When I went from 49 to 50, I called Mary Wells. It was something in the New York Times. And they, they, my birthday was like two weeks later. And I was 49 when they did the interview and 50 when it was going to be published. <laughs> and when the fact checker called, I said, you can't say 50 because I was 49 when, right. when I was asked this question. Times always says how old women are, not right. always what men say. At least they used to. And she said, no, no, we do it the day that you're published. <gasps> And I called Mary Wells and I said, Mary, she was like 85 at the time. I said, Mary, she said, you fucking get into the times. What do you care how old you are? And I, I uh, had to really think about it and think uh-huh. about it and think about it because I didn't want to be 50 and I didn't want to be 60 and I didn't want to be 70, but I was grateful to be 80 Yeah, yeah. because so many people weren't with me anymore and they didn't make it and they didn't have luck. It's all luck. I don't mm-hmm. think it's going to church and praying. Some people do. I don't go anywhere. I just, you know, say thanks, great, great, great grandma for my genes. Mm. Sheila. Here I am. Thank you. You sure are. Talking to me. Are you kidding? Loved it. And thinking. I don't always think, I mostly do. So thank you so much for making me think. Oh, truly a treat. Thank you so much, Sheila. For me as well. You've been listening to Five Things That Make Life Better with me. Lisa Birnbach. My guest this week has been Sheila Nevins, longtime president of HBO Documentary Films. She has won more 
Emmys than anyone in the world, not to mention all the Peabody's and whatever else, Cable Aces, I'm sure. You can, oh, yeah. list, you can listen to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, all of them, all those places, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Sheila's book, which is a New York Times bestseller and now available in paperback, is You Don't Look Your Age and Other Fairy Tales. And we are produced in New York City by thefieldtv.com. My team is Kevin Watkins, Michael Port, Spressa Arucci, Boko Haft, and Sam Haft. Until next week, wear a mask and act natural. Bye-bye. That was Five Things with Lisa Bernbach. New episodes every Friday, if she remembers. <laughs>